Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to another RAIB Roundup, the episodes of Signals to Danger, where we look at current affairs in the world of the railway and the work of the Accident Investigation Branch. My name is Dan Fox and I'm the producer of the Signals to Danger podcast and the Railwayman in my everyday life. But do you know what? The plan wasn't for this episode to be an RAIB roundup. I do actually have a full length episode in the pipeline, but well, I've been a bit unwell of late. For a good chunk of the last two weeks, I've been, well, decidedly not energetic, lethargic, and have been sparked out by 9.30pm on more than one occasion. And well, with a full-time job, it's the evenings that, that get this, so... Me in bed at half nine, not good for podcast productivity. Happy to say, not part of the COVID resurgence that we've seen around and about, but I've been knocked for six by some good old-fashioned cold and flu-like symptoms, as well as battling through work, which I haven't tried not to take any time off from. In any case, I'm feeling a bit better now, but I felt that it might be quicker to get a roundup out to you than it would be to polish off that next full episode. It is on its way, but giving myself a week to get that out feels like it's more attainable without compromising on the quality, but I wanted to make sure that you could get your signals fixed. So here we are with this week and our unexpected roundup. So this time around, we're going to be briefly revisiting the Scotsman incident up in the Scottish Highlands, and we're going to briefly mention a new investigation that the branch has taken on and a report that's been released since we last spoke. And finally, I'm going to provide a brief insight into my day job, or rather something that I did as part of it last week. All that said, let's crack on with the uh, intro music and get into this week's roundup. that have resulted in catastrophic consequences. 
Well, and if you couldn't tell, I've decided to stop messing about with different types of music and just stick with what I know for credits for the roundups. It is Signals to Danger. It is the slightly different section of Signals to Danger, but Signals nonetheless. So that's why I've decided to go ahead and do that. Any case, let's get cracking with an update on the Flying Scotsman. So first and foremost, a small slice of humble pie from me. Last time we spoke about the Flying Scotsman incident at Aviemore, it was a bit of a currently occurring situation and I wasn't clear what action might be taken by the RIB, if any. I can't recall whether well, I said this on the podcast or not, but I definitely said it on Twitter that this time two weeks ago, my money was on a safety digest if we saw anything at all. Well, I need to eat my hat on that one or hand over some cash because it transpires that the RIB are certainly interested enough in the occurrence to undertake a full investigation into the accident. The branch are certainly pulling back from that hard shunt description that we talked about last time as well. They're referring to the incident under the title of a collision at Aviemore Station on the Strathby Railway, Highlands, on the 29th of September 2003. While we know a little bit about it already, the branch's press release from the 16th tells us that At around 18.05 on the 29th of September, the steam locomotive Flying Scotsman collided with a set of stationary passenger coaches at Aviemore Station. We also get some more concrete detail around the speed, as they go on to tell us that the collision occurred at approximately 7 miles an hour, which is 11 kilometres an hour. Additionally, that release tells us that the collision resulted in injuries being caused to a number of passengers and staff, with one passenger and one member of staff being taken to hospital. No rail vehicles derailed as a result of the accident, although some damage was caused to the vehicles involved. Since the accident, we know from National Rail Museum that the Scotsman herself was inspected at Aviemore to make sure she was fit to continue service. This came back clear and the local is actually now back in York already for the October half term. I'd wager there might be a new coat of paint on the tender's buffers, but we'll see. Uh, The observation car of the Scotsman train, that was taken by road to be checked out following the incident, so it might be this that's exhibiting that damage more so than the loco was. In any case, the RAIB have told us what they'll be looking into as part of this investigation. Probably won't be surprising to those of you who listened before to hear some fairly common terms. The investigation will seek to, of course, identify the sequence of events leading up to the accident, as well as considering the actions of those involved and anything that might have influenced them the management of the railway staff involved in the accident, including their training and their competence. And it's also going to look at the method of operation in use when the collision occurred and the policies and procedures procedures in place for managing such operations. And this one's going to be key, I think, especially as we look at what types of procedures might govern this activity on the main line versus heritage railways. As ever, when people are hurt, the investigation is going to consider the extent and type of any injuries and damage caused, and how they occurred, and as a final fan favourite, I'm sure it is by now, the identification of any underlying management factors. So now, in my tradition, as it is, uh, we will wait and see, and we'll revisit this one once again when that report is complete. All of that being said, though, I did receive some really interesting feedback from a listener after the last episode. I'd raised that the coupling procedure on the main line involves stopping six foot six inches short or two meters before powering the train onto the other coaches or the other unit when you're coupling. But admittedly, I don't know how this applies to heritage stock or railways. Or rather, I didn't have any idea about heritage stock or heritage railways until, luckily, Matthew, one of our listeners, got in touch. 
He's much more aware of the requirements in that world than I am, and he reached out over the DMs to help me out here. The crux of his message was that that six foot six inch short rule is a diesel era rule, and actually there are inherently more risks associated with stopping a steam loco short and then attempting a controlled restart and stop in such a short distance. As a result, the preferred option there is powering onto the stock. Now, Matthew was keen to note that powering onto the stock is a turn of phrase only, the steam that the power will have been shut off before making contact. So I guess in practice, that's probably more of a controlled coast onto the stock. The fact of the matter seems to be that steam locos are, well, apart from being a lot harder to control precisely than the diesels that followed, Matthew pointed out that there are some other risks associated with stopping and starting as well like this, such as priming. For those of you who don't know, like I didn't before I looked it up to write this, priming is a condition in the boiler of a steam loco where water is carried over into the steam delivery. So from the boiler, actually you're getting water running through the system, not just steam. Harmful to the valves and the pistons, it washes away the lubrication and it can be dangerous because any water collecting in the cylinders is not compressible. And if it's trapped, it could fracture the cylinder head or the piston. In the spirit of the weather that we're seeing this weekend and watching videos driving through the floodwater, I kind of think hydro-locked car engines might be a way to get your head around how bad water in a cylinder on a train can be. In any case, Matthew brought this to my attention following the fact that the poor guy had to spend the best part of four hours last weekend explaining to passengers why they don't stop short after being told that, well, they've been told on Twitter and other sources or Reddit on these other sources, that the lack of stopping short was the reason that Scotsman crashed. So they were asking staff whether they were putting them at risk. Off the back of that, thought I'd do my bit to try and help spread that message. So thank you, Matthew, for reaching out, giving me lots of content as well as education. Uh, but for now, we will stop talking about the Scotsman just for a little bit. The eagle-eared of you, eagle-eared, is that a phrase? I doubt it. The insert animal here with really good hearing, eared of you, will probably have noted that I haven't gone with a musical sting between those sections, and that is a suggestion from uh, John Jones on Twitter. Now, I did try this in the past, in the main episode. Some of you might remember some ear-splitting AWS horns for one or two episodes, but I thought I'd try it again with something a little different, trying to match the volume there as well, so it's not a sudden surprise for you. A bit more in keeping with the podcast as a short sting between sections, as opposed to, I don't know, the, the, I was going to nearly hum the countdown theme there, but I didn't, that's not what I meant, the little news sting. So this is what we're going with now. Which brings us nicely on to our RAIB update section of this week's episode, and we'll be covering another notification of a new investigation, as well as the publication of a report that was underway. So, two in, one out, I guess, this month? Starting with the new investigation then, this one uh, tragically relates to an incident at St. Philip's Marsh Depot in Bristol, where a worker was injured while at work. The RAIB's news release tells us that around 13.15 on the 26th of September 2023, a member of staff who was responsible for shunting trains was struck by a train that had just exited the main shed within the depot near Bristol. Member of staff sustained serious lower body injuries and some minor upper body and head injuries as a result of the accident. 
the branch goes on to tell us that that investigation is going to, well, as ever, seek to identify the sequence of events and understand the actions of those involved and anything that influenced them, the process in place for train movements inside the depot, as well as the training and competence of staff involved in the activity. We're going to look at the way that risks associated with train movements were being managed at the depot and any underlying management factors, of course. Clearly, it is a grim day when anyone's hit by a train, especially when they're just going about their day-to-day tasks at work and when processes should be in place to protect them. So with that in mind, it's going to be interesting to see what the branch turns up as they unpick this one. Moving on now to the other end of this process, we have the release of a final completed report. And in the last week, we saw one of those drop in. And you might not be surprised to find out which one it is, given the the confidence I described last time we spoke. It's a petrol bridge near Carlisle. So as a quick recap to you all, this incident took place um, just before 8pm on the 19th of October last year. Saw five tank wagons in a train that was conveying cement powder from Clitheroe and Lancashire to Mosen near Glasgow. Derailed near Petrol Bridge Junction in Carlisle. As we get into this episode, I'm going to apologise. I might sound a little breathy at times. Um, better enough to record. Not quite well enough to, to talk for... Well, it's only been 12 minutes or so at this point, but not quite there yet in terms of lung capacity, apparently. In any case, a number of the wagons were damaged and there was significant damage to the track and to the bridge over the river. And that meant the line from Carlisle to Newcastle and to Settle was closed for seven weeks. So what has the branch found then? I'm not going to give you a spoiler alert because I'm sure reading the full text will be an activity some of you will enjoy all the same, but I will do a brief rundown of the findings for you here. Summary tells us that the derailment occurred because one set of wheels on the ninth wagon in the train stopped rotating during the journey. These had stopped rotating up to 55 miles before the derailment and continued to slide along the railhead, causing considerable damage to the profile of the wheel treads. One heck of a wheel flat. This meant that the wheels were unable to safely negotiate a set of points just before Petrol Bridge Junction, damaging them and causing the ninth wagon to become derailed. Five of the wagons derailed due to the consequent track damage and two of them fell off the side of the bridge where the railway crosses the River Petrol. Ninth tank wagon was ruptured and landed upside down in the river, although very little of the cement powder was actually spilled, which is very lucky. The initial wheel slide was probably the result of a normal brake application made in low adhesion conditions that were not abnormal for the route at the time of year. And the wheel slide continued because the adhesion between the wheels and the rails was then insufficient for the wheels to restart rotation. There are some interesting aspects covered in this report, including one one of the first times I've seen this, um, some screenshots from trackside webcams, um, courtesy of the friends of the Settle in Carlisle. Using this and footage from forward-facing CCTV on another train and some CCTV footage from people's houses, investigators have tried to identify when this wheel set actually stopped turning. Sparking does become visible on some of the images towards the latter half of the journey um, by in one of the stations and from the, the CCTV from a property. But actually, these cameras were in sort of night vision mode at that point, so it shows up quite well, or when the image has been enhanced, uh, but wouldn't have been that visible to the naked eye, which is one of the reasons signalers checking the train was complete didn't clock this. 
The report gives us a nice immediate cause to this accident. It's that train 6Charlie00 derailed while travelling through 679 Alpha Point in the trailing direction due to a large false flange that developed on the leading wheel set of the 9th wagon during the journey, and this had not been detected. In fact, the depth of that wheel flap, and which had created the false flange, had actually been about 2.5cm deep into the surface of the wheel at the centre point. It's quite the depth, that's a lot of metal worn away by contact with other metal, but probably to be expected after 55 miles of just dragging it flat. The mechanism of the derailment itself, that's described within the report, and it's when that false flange reached the points just before Petrol Bridge Junction. The left wheel dropped inside the left rail after it passed the end of the switch rail. Its outer face pushed the left rail outwards, while the flange of the right wheel was pushed against the right rail and was trying to climb up onto it. The track fixings holding the left rail in position then just gave way. The rail shifted to the left and rolled over. And a few metres further on, the left wheel collided with a check rail, and this caused the left wheel to climb over that left rail and the right wheel to drop into the forefoot. And that's quite a lot to take in, just lefts and rights and rails and wheels. Have a look at the report. There's some really good diagrams in there that spell it out far more than I'll be able to in just this short an episode. The fact that all of this took place in the vicinity of that bridge certainly didn't help matters. There were causal factors also identified as part of the investigation, uh, the first being that the ninth wagon developed very large wheel flats and consequently false flanges uh, on its leading wheel set as a result of that wheel set sliding along the railhead for between 48 and 55 miles. That's the seven mile window they've given. It's a, such a long distance. So over that length of distance, how does the RAIB know that the wheel didn't start turning again following the initial slide that started the flat? Well, that's covered in the report, and it tells us that if the wheel set had been rotating for some distance after a significant wheel flat had been generated, the resulting vibration would likely have caused damage to other components on the wagon or its bogies. The, well, the absence of this type of damage to brake blocks and to the brake rigging on that wagon demonstrated that it had not been rotating for most of the time after the wheel flats had been generated. If you add into this the fact that there were some false flange marks at every set of points from Kirby Stephen to Petrol Bridge Junction, the RAB has concluded that it is very likely that the wheel set slid continuously from the point that it first stopped rotating until just before the derailment, so about 55 miles. The report does go on to cover some other issues, such as the management of railhead adhesion on the line and the fact that the train wasn't stopped prior to the accident taking place. And on the second front, um, well, the report attributes that to, well, attributes the lack of the train being stopped to a combination of two factors. Firstly, that none of the signalers along the train's route were aware that one of the wheel sets was not rotating and so didn't arrange for it to be stopped and examined. Secondly, there was no engineered system in place that was, to, was there to detect specifically wheel sets that weren't rotating and to either automatically stop the train or to alert signalers along the route to the issue. So the train had passed several signal boxes with the wheels sliding. Um, a lot of the Settle and Carlisle, that's absolute block signalling with real-life signalers sat in real-life signal boxes, actually watching the train physically go past to make sure it's got a tail lamp on, it hasn't lost any wagons, etc., etc. We call that making sure that the train is complete. So with all these signalers looking out the window, 
checking the train, why did none of them notice a set of wheels that weren't turning? So there was a point that the sparks probably weren't visible. Now, as we've said, you can see in some of the CCTV that it is, but that's CCTV that's in night vision mode. Um, one of the signal boxes where it might have been visible by that point. Um, actually, the signal box is right next to a level crossing, which was floodlit. So the chances of seeing it in that light as opposed to in the dark, big difference. There is a point made in the report that um, there's a few failed axle counters that were failing as the train was making its way across the route. And that should have triggered a stop and examination of the train. However, both the signal boxes that would have been affected by that were aware that the rule book required them to stop and examine a train in the event of multiple or sequential track circuit failures. In the glossary of the railway, track circuit and axle counters are different systems. However, for the purposes of this rule, the multiple failed axle counters would have applied but neither of the signalers in those signal boxes recognise that this rule also applied in this situation. It's a bit of a, a funny one with the wording and what's applicable, because until I read this report, I wouldn't have thought axle counters were track circuits for the purposes of this rule. There is that subject of engineered solutions. Uh, there was none that were there to make sure that, you know, to, to alert a signaler that wheels had stopped turning on the trains. So Network Rail does have several systems for monitoring the condition of trains as they traverse the infrastructure. They're located at discrete locations. Their sighting is largely determined by the number and types of trains at that location and considers any dangerous goods that might be on trains in these areas. So two of these systems are gotchas and habdas, hot axle box detectors. So they are... Two different systems that are there to, to, to monitor trains as they pass and to highlight a specific fault with that train as, as you know, a, a remote system that's there to capture these. They can be quite dangerous, both of these, these conditions, and they can both lead to derailments. So with respect to gotchas and habdas, there were no gotcha sites on the route of the train from Clitheroe to Carlisle. In that situation, it's a bit of a moot point because gotcha, that's configured to measure vertical impact and load forces on the rail. So if a train has wheel flats, really bad wheel flats, and the wheel is turning, you'll get this thump, 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 thump impact on the rail. We've seen some derailments. We've seen some bad accidents in, over recent years, like um, Laganek, and I have definitely pronounced that wrong, The, the in Wales where... Really bad wheel flats are damaged miles and miles and miles of track. This impact of essentially a metal punch striking down into the rail. So a gotcha would have picked up that. But it measures that vertical impact and load forces, so it would not have been able to detect a sliding wheel set, which is what we had here. And habitas, so hot axle box detectors, they are there to pick up the feet, the heat, the feet, the heat of a failed axle bearing. That's the real issue. So when the axle on a train wheel is not working properly, not turning properly, the bearing can fail, it will heat up, it'll get incredibly warm. Uh, it could lead to a fire on that train. It could lead to derailments if the wheel fails fully. 
But in this situation, there were no hot axle box detector sites on the route of the train again. But actually, there was no evidence that the ninth wagon had a failing axle bearing, so there wouldn't have been the heat of a hot axle box. So both of those systems, which are fitted to the track in specific locations, firstly weren't present, and secondly wouldn't have actually caught the stuff that they were looking for. The report does tell us that it is technically possible to fit freight wagons with systems that are there to detect non-rotating wheel sets. It's not routinely done though due to the additional cost and potential complexity of this equipment, although it is something that VTG, the owner of the wagons, is currently looking into. They're trialling several novel systems capable of monitoring wheel rotation and implementing wheel side protection, wheel slide protection. I'm not out of practice, I promise, I just can't get my words out today. Um, The intention of those trials is to understand the benefits and the practicability of such technology, and hopefully it's something that we can see preventing incidents like this in the future. As ever, and as we expect in all situations when the RAIB gets involved, this is a very detailed report with a lot of information in it, so it's not something that I can cover fully in a roundup. So I would urge you, as ever, to go ahead and read the full report if you're interested. With that covered, well, I guess it's time for the show to go on. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So I don't normally talk too much about my day job on these podcasts. Primarily, actually, because I like to keep a healthy, well, healthy degree of separation between the two. I don't think I've even ever confirmed which train operator it is I work for. Although I'm fairly confident some of you out there have figured this out by now. Probably a combination of the accent and the parts of the world I talk about most frequently. But I'm never going to actually say it. I don't think just that's work, this is hobby-ish. But I am going to talk about it briefly this time. And it's purely because of something I got to do this week as part of my job. So there are many infrastructure projects across the industry at the moment, and granted, well, HS2, that's been the one most talked about of late. 
Even by me, if you've heard some of my rants on Twitter, I've not necessarily been the kindest person to the government over the last few weeks, for various reasons that are... Well, I think I stand by, to be honest with you, but let's not get into politics. It's not the place for politics. We could do um, we could do a whole full episode on the, the disaster that is this government's abandonment of railway pro- No, anyway, I'm getting carried away. So HS2 has been in the news a lot. I've talked about HS2 a lot, but there is another railway project that actually is relevant to my day-to-day job, um, especially considering that the company I work for is one of the Alliance partners and the role finds me joining calls, going on workshops and being in meetings with both the project itself and other Alliance partners. That project is the Transpennine Route Upgrade, or TRU. Uh, The programme defines itself as a, and this is straight off their website, a major multi-billion pound programme of railway improvements, which will bring better journeys to passengers travelling across the Pennines between Manchester, Huddersfield, Leeds and York, and will transform the Transpennine mainline into a high-performing, reliable railway, bringing more frequent, more reliable, faster and greener trains. Project's massive. It's going to involve the rebuilding of several stations, the electrification of the route and the addition of some segregated fast running lines between Huddersfield and Dewsbury, which is going to shave time off journeys across the spine of the country. Because it's not just this bit of West Yorkshire or that bit of North Yorkshire or that little bit from Manchester. It's it's a, as a whole piece, this will massively alter the the journey times and the experience of passengers. But it's a big project. It'll be going for a while. And as much as I have a vested interest in it in a way, I'm not here to sell you TRU today. What I do want to give a brief nod to, however, is TRUST. That's T-R-U-S-T, the Upgrades Safety Induction Programme. As somebody who is, after a fashion, involved in the programme, I got an opportunity to partake in it, and I am, I think, what do the kids say nowadays? I am shook. Um, It is, hands down, the best, most engaging, and most impactful training session I have ever been involved in. And, unfortunately... I am not going to share the details of the session with you today, at least not in the uh, the detail and the way that I would absolutely love to. I'd love to give you a blow by blow of the details, share with you exactly how the session works because mind blown, really, really, really good session, really interesting, really impressed. But there are a lot of people who are still to go through that training and, um, I think it's probably far more impactful for people if they don't have the future knowledge. And there's there's definitely a, a bit of an energy around the program that if you haven't been on it yet, don't spoil it for other people. Um, but I really want to tell you about it because it's, it's fantastic. But what I will do is I'll tell you what's already out there in the public realm from TRU. And I know it's probably okay to say this stuff because it's what's in their press release. So they say that everyone working on the major rail upgrade between Manchester and New York will undertake a one-day interactive training program which uses actors to place participants at the heart of a hard-hitting narrative, witnessing the decisions, actions and events that could lead to a fatal incident on the rail tracks. It really is hard-hitting, that is. They say attendees at the Trust Centre participate in a series of interactive facilitated workshops and engage with the characters in real-world scenarios, including in their home, a police interview, and a work canteen. 
learning the communication skills they can put into practice to improve safety in the workplace. They are then encouraged to apply these as they are transported back into the story. Training at the Trust Centre, designed and delivered by Active Training Team, so that's ATT, will appeal to all three sensory learning styles, visual, auditory, and kinoesthetic. High-quality production values and industry-leading technology deliver a powerful, immersive experience shown to strengthen learning, memory, and positively impact on subsequent behaviour. This really works as a concept, and I'm impressed just how much. On the front page of their website, ATT says, Tell me I forget. Show me I may remember. Involve me and I understand. And it's so true. It's been four days since I went on this course and I'm still finding myself stunned by how good it was and how well it was delivered. And you can tell that it probably comes across. I'm not even telling you the details and I'm still sat here thinking this was so good. It was so meaningful and it will stick in a way that many other things don't. The centre cost TIU £2.7 million to set up. I can absolutely see where the money has gone. And it was, unlike many things in this industry, in a lot of people's opinion, money well spent. So as far as media in Bunny Ears goes, I'm not really a pro, but I'm going to do the pro thing. I'm going to share some quotes from the various press releases. The the first purpose-built rail safety centre of its kind in the north of England, Trust was officially opened by Hugh Merriman, um, the Minister for Rail, so Hugh Merriman MP, in August in Huddersfield. He said, this is a major milestone for the Transpennine route upgrade. Not only is the programme creating greener and more reliable services across the north, but it's also taking vital steps to create a well-trained and highly skilled workforce. Safety remains at the heart of the railways, and this centre will ensure it's in the mind of every member of staff working on the project too. Couldn't agree more, to be honest with you. And in in another story, I met Hugh Merriman MP later that day for something completely different, also linked into work. Um, and he'd just come from the Trust Centre. So it was interesting to hear him talking to his colleagues about how he found that experience. Going into another quote now. Neil Holm, Managing Director of Transpennine Route Upgrade, said of the centre, The opening of the groundbreaking Trust Centre embodies the ethos that safety sits at the heart of the multi-billion pound Transpennine Route Upgrade. We want to ensure that everyone gets home safe every day, as we work to bring cleaner, faster and better journeys between Manchester, Huddersfield, Leeds and York. The safety of our teams has never been more important. Trust Centre training will be undertaken by everyone working on our programme both working in offices and on the front line. It's important that colleagues from planning, design, delivery and all of our functions understand how the decisions we make are crucial when it comes to safety. Taking an immersive approach allows workers to absorb and remember their training more clearly and for longer. So I don't know if it's come across while I've been yammering on about this, but I really would like to talk to you more about this day. I'd like to do a whole episode about this day, this course, how it's delivered, how, what, what it is. Uh, I have actually reached out to TRU on Twitter to sort of ask that question. 
Uh, but if anyone's listening to this with a more tangible link to TIU than I have, please feel free to reach out. Um, this is a real example of how innovative training can be and how far we've come from a bloke with a flip chart or death by PowerPoint. It's even so much more impactful than some of those railway safety videos we all remember from our days at school. And some of them really do hit the message home. I guarantee, I can almost, I, I would I would put money on it. Although last time I did that, I lost. So, But I guarantee that anyone who's been through this training will find it sticks better than any other format would. This, this is the way that we save lives. It impressed me thoroughly. I don't know if you can tell. And I've wanted to talk about it ever since, which means it's been a very long few days for Mrs. Signals. So that brings me to the end of this rather breathless roundup. I had considered including a bit about the storm that's currently ravaging the country and the impact that it's having on the network, but it's uh, 21.19 on Saturday evening, and that's kind of still going on. So maybe one to save up and talk about next time we meet for a roundup. The next episode will be a full traditional Signals to Danger episode, and in an interesting change of pace, because I've made you wait so long, I'm going to give you a heads up as to what we're covering. We'll be heading back to 1989 into the Scottish city of Glasgow to learn about single lead junctions, head-on collisions, and finding out what the phrase ding, ding and away means as we discuss the Belgrove accident from the year that I was born. As before, the, uh, the roundup is a relatively new concept, so feedback is appreciated. You'll find me on Twitter, on Facebook, just search for Signals to Danger, or Daniel Fox Rail. If emails you're seen, it's daniel.fox at dfrailmedia.com. And if you want to be super professional, you can find me on LinkedIn. Just look for Daniel Fox. So again, if you like TAT, don't forget we have TAT. There is merchandise now. And if you do want to support the podcast in other ways, that's your thing. You can find us over on Patreon um, or get yourself over to the signalstodanger.com website. It's a weird way to say that. Just get yourself over to signalstodanger.com. Check out the support page. That's it from me. And once again, until the next time you hear my voice, travel safe. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.